You're here today with Dr. Rebecca Hoffman and our usual podcaster of Dr. Charlotte Hespi. And we're welcoming today Dr. Martina Gleason. So I'm actually going to jump straight into our highlight of the week because it's one of my favorite things that we do. And I'm going to ask Charlotte, what is your highlight of the week? I've just come back from my first adventure back on a plane. So that wasn't so exciting. But what was exciting was that I went to South Australia, Adelaide, in my role of the RACGP New South Wales ACT chair, and had the opportunity to meet with all the other fellow directors and faculty chairs from around Australia with the South Australian Northern Territory faculty. In Adelaide, we had a cocktail party dinner with everybody before then spending a day in a board meeting. And can I tell you what a joy it was to meet this absolutely fabulous group of GPs who were just stunning in their range of skills, their enthusiasm for being great GPs. And I was blown away by the depth of talent and just awesomeness in the room. So we've got some scope for more Just a GP podcast interviews, can I say, Beck? That sounds very interesting. And Martina, what was the best thing that happened to you this week? I had lunch with some friends yesterday at Centennial Park and you would think, well, what's so good about that? But I love May weather in Sydney, cool nights and then lovely blue, clear skies and sunny days. And just after last year, the opportunity for connection with other people. And this is a special group because it's a bunch of three other GP supervisors that I met at GP Tech about five years ago. And when we were at the airport waiting to go back to Sydney after the conference, we sort of recognised each other from the conference and said, let's just go and have a glass of wine together while we're waiting for the plane. We just hit it off so well because that experience of being GP supervisors means you've got similar values and experiences and also a similar need for support from your peers. And so we decided five years ago that we would meet regularly for lunch and we've been doing it for five years every month. So it's been a great source of peer support and sister power and it's something I look forward to every month. So, yeah, something to be grateful for, new friendships. That sounds really lovely and also really very important. Mine is actually along quite a similar thread. I was also on my first flight in the last months and months and months and months went going down to Melbourne. Not only did I get to do a face-to-face board meeting, which is entirely different to Zoom meetings and actually enables you to have discussion, but I got to give one of my very best friends four-week-old babies a cuddle. And that is actually one of my favourite things to do is baby cuddles, especially when we can give them back. On the back of that, it meant that I got two whole nights in a hotel room by myself with no children in bed with me, which is probably a second only to the baby cuddles. So, Martina, the next thing which I'd like you to do is actually introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll move on to yourself in the leadership space. So who are you and tell us a bit about yourself. So I'm a GP in the Sutherland Shire in Caringba and I've practised as a GP for more than 30 years now. I'm also the GP clinical lead for South Eastern Sydney Health Pathways 
uh, which I've been doing for about three years uh, and which I really enjoy. I'm a mother of two grown-up children who are now in their 30s and don't live with me, which gives me time because I live alone. So my time is my own and I don't need to worry about coming home and cooking for other people, just myself. So it's actually freed up some time and given me space to step into a bit more of a leadership space at this time of my life, which is an unexpected joy. So what particularly we've invited you in for and what we would like to talk to you about was leading in a space or working in a space where there is little to no medical evidence or where you're working at the absolute extremes of your knowledge. At the frontier of existence. Exactly. (laughs) And so what we're particularly talking about is gender affirming care. And what I was hoping I could do is get you to start by just talking about how you got into this area and what it is you enjoy about it. And then perhaps we might talk a little bit more about how we lead and how we work in areas that don't have as much evidence as we normally have in medicine. So I first became interested when one of my patients came out as transgender. This was actually a patient that I looked after the pregnancy that resulted in their birth. So I had known them all of their life. and That's amazing. I know. It's such a privilege. Absolutely (laughs) such a privilege. So like within six months, that person approached me and said, think I'm transgender and and I also got a new patient who was already fully transitioned and they had moved from the inner city out to our area and they were looking for a GP and that was interesting because I met the daughter and the wife first and I feel like they were testing me out and when they found that I was pretty affirming and not judgmental then they decided to test me out and see if I would be okay with looking after them which of course I was but I realized that I had a lot to learn I just felt that, like, if this is my patient, then I need to know. So just like if you get a patient with lupus, you become a little bit more of a specialist on lupus. And if you've got patients with diabetes, you have to up your skills in managing their diabetes. This was, for me, it was just another area of medicine that I hadn't had to become an expert in. And I still wouldn't call myself an expert, but I just needed to get educated. Maybe my approach was a little different to others. So I'm a member of a local mental health practitioners network meeting. And we're actually one of the biggest meetings in Sydney. We can have up to 30 mental health practitioners coming to our meetings and we get to set our own agenda. So I asked the group if they would like to learn a little bit more about transgender care and mental health. And they said, yes. So we invited Elizabeth Riley to come and talk to our group, which was, I had no idea what a coup it was to get her because she's an expert in the mental health of transgender people. And I took myself off for some self-education. I went up to Brisbane and spent a weekend doing an in-depth education event where up-to-date information was presented. And I took myself to the ANSPATH conference that happened to be in Sydney and they have a day before the main conference, which is a GP education day. So that, yeah, I just kind of immersed myself in it so that I could learn the basic skills that I needed so I could look after my patients. I relate a lot with that because I pretty much launched into that whole scenario, well, launched into being a transgender GP through a first patient experience who then basically referred 
friends and colleagues. And then it basically extended into becoming our whole practice because that's how we work as a practice anyway. So we all upskilled and looked at what that meant in terms of quality of care and how did we manage the sort of the legal framework around the prescribing, around what was the evidence of which there was so little. And I must say it's a much better space for newer GPs looking after patients with, well, we initially called it gender dysphoria, but now... Gender incongruence, according to the ICD-10. Yeah, because it's been such a long time for me, because I actually started right as soon as I'd finished as a registrar. It's been a very, a long journey and fabulous to see how much better the resources are and, and also the increasing amount of evidence, if you can call it that, in terms of behind safety, I think would be the best way of saying for what we do and how we support patients in this area. A couple of years ago, there was an endocrinologist in Sydney who suddenly stopped working and they probably had the biggest caseload of any endocrinologist or any doctor in Sydney because they pretty much only did gender-affirming care. And so that caused a little bit of a crisis in Sydney because there were a whole lot of very distressed patients. Not just a little crisis, Martina. No, it was a big crisis, but it was also an opportunity for growth and fabulous response by ACON and their division that looks after transgender patients. And there was a big confab in Sydney of people who were working in the space, multidisciplinary confab, and people started writing guidelines and getting together informed consent documents and really planned education so that more GPs could upskill and provide the care. And I actually think that there's been a lot of benefit from that because people can now receive care closer to home. And it's, in a way, I think, normalised transgender care so that it really should be in the scope of GPs to at least be a... I think it's mainstreamed, mainstreamed rather than... Yeah, I agree. It's set out an expectation of what do I do if... What are the baseline investigations? Who can I refer to? What can I do in general practice? And I think what's been really good is actually giving us permission to say, I am actually the best place to look after them because I do look after all of their health and there is no problem and no issue with safety with being the person who initiates the hormonal medicines within that nice, you know, framework of care. And it's been interesting because there's also been a little bit of training of staff so that they understand use of preferred names and pronouns and just really how we can look at how our admin processes affirm the patient's gender as soon as they walk into the room. And that can be challenging because clinical software systems don't necessarily support that. So one of the things I've done is tried to take on a little bit of advocacy with medical director to try and get some changes made. And I know other people have done it with best practice just to try and get things working better for transgender people. Because it's a whole of person care from the minute they walk in the door. And it's not just about hormones, it's about looking after the person, which is actually what GPs do. It's right in our ballpark. So I'm interested in talking about how we move from finding evidence wherever we can and being immersed in something we don't know to then you've moved into another role, which is really teaching and educating others. How and why did you decide to move into this role? 
again, it's about normalising care. And whenever I see problems, I try to think about how can we make the system work better? Because that's why I do health pathways and also why I've looked at how can I contribute to the discussion so that people feel more comfortable providing this care and it doesn't seem too difficult. So it seemed natural to me. I approached my MHPN again this year and said to them, you know, would you like a talk on transgender care from one of us rather than from an outsider? And gave a talk to the local psychologists and school counsellors just about basic stuff, like not about the hormones, but about the evidence-based stuff about how you cause less trauma when you affirm the person's stated identity and that it's really just basic human respect. If someone tells you their name is different to what's on their birth certificate, you use the one that they tell you. And if they tell you what their gender is and their pronouns are, then you use those gender and, and pronouns. And even if the person is still exploring that and not quite sure that it's going to stick, I have no investment in what pronouns they use. I just want to respect them and use the pronouns that they want. So there are some basic things that we can do, that I can do, and I don't, I really don't regard myself as an expert in transgender care, but I do regard myself as an expert in human care. And so I think it's, it's just an extension of that. I agree with you 100%, Martina, but, you know, we have to fight the systems as well. Yes. So, for instance, the Medicare thing, you know, I find it extraordinarily frustrating where I have to use the name on their Medicare card regardless of what, you know, whereabouts in the whole process it is. And it can be so disrespectful because you're sending this referral about their care and you're using a name that you know has been rejected solidly rejected a lot of the time and it's really tricky because I always set out you know like I'm really sorry I have to have it there at that point because Mm. of the whole Medicare requirement stuff but everywhere else I will refer to you as you know yeah absolutely I will often negotiate with the patient you know like explaining that I need to use a Medicare name somewhere and you know are you comfortable with me writing it this way or would you like me to write it a different way how can we make this so that it causes you the least amount of distress possible yeah and those conversations are so wonderful because a lot of the time they've never had them and no one's actually acknowledged the importance of that respect for how it's navigated and I suppose, too, it is that, that opportunity to say, now, look, the health system is not really designed yeah. to be good at being flexible or necessarily being respectful of those things. Mm. So this is what might happen. And I apologise in advance for <laughs> that lack of flexibility in the system that we work in. Yeah, absolutely. Patient-centred is really, it's a buzzword, but in this case, it's really important that we are patient-centred, that we listen to them, we try to negotiate the system with them, and we, in some ways, are their advocate in the system. And, like, I love that part of my work, so it's not hard to do at all. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the lovely transgender patients I had the privilege of looking after was this lovely woman who I'll call G, just as a, a good way of starting. But her children could not cope with her being her and continued right to her death of calling her her previous name. And it was really hard. I remember actually right at the end having this quite harsh conversation with her children and saying, please be respectful. 
that for her, it's really, really important that she be allowed to be who she identifies, particularly as she's dying. And I get the grief that you might be feeling at the loss of who she is to you. But at this point, you need to accept that for her, that's the choice that she would like you to be able to acknowledge, particularly as she dies so that she can have that gift really as she dies. And I must say, I think it is one of the harder things, but roles that we can play in helping transition family grief at the same time as being respectful. I love the concept of circle of support. You know, so the person who, let's let's take it away from transgender, the person with cancer is in the centre of the circle and so all support goes into that person. And if you're in the next level outside the circle, like the, the partner or the child, you're very close, you're one of the main supports to the person with cancer, but you're finding that it's a bit of a burden and it's making you sad or angry. You don't actually complain about how you're feeling about the person's cancer to the person with the cancer you complain out so it's the concept of support in and kvetching out and i often will use that uh, when i'm talking to parents who are struggling to come to terms with an adolescent's declaration of identity and say you need support but it's not your child's job to support you it's your job to support them but you need to get support for yourself as well and explain that concept to them And you're right, I mean, the most loving thing those children could have done for their parent would be to acknowledge her identity. Go and get their counselling later. (laughs) Deal deal with it, as you say, in another space, but let her just be loved. And we see that. I see that more with my transgender patients than I do with a lot of other people because that whole sense of identity is so key to what, some of these whole relationship issues can go Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because probably 20 years ago in the middle of the HIV crisis, it was, you know, parents had a lot of trouble accepting their child's sexuality. And it's like people are a bit easier at coping with that in their children that they still struggle with their gender. So I think that's just we're evolving and hopefully with community education and change in attitudes, it will become less difficult for young people to declare their identity. If I go and do some of that exploration around where we struggle with it, isn't part of the gender for a parent that you have these dreams and aspirations around what your child is and that, whether we like it or not, is very, very much tied around gender. And you see that so much with people as they... You know, they have now, I see these sort of pregnancy gender reveal parties, you know, and it's sort of like, but does it really matter? I mean, you're making a baby, you know, there's a 50-50 chance it's going to be one or t'other, but we just want a nice, healthy, live baby. But culturally, we are very stuck into the importance of what the gender is and then what that means to us as a parent. And it's interesting when you talk about culture and social constructs because our Western culture is so couched in the binary and yet there are many other cultures that celebrate their people that are not binary. 
So, you know, you've got brother boys and sister girls, you've got cultures all over the world where transgender people exist and actually are an important part of spirituality and community celebration and but it's us stuck here in the West that have this binary that are struggling, which is just an interesting reflection because it makes it more difficult, which is kind of sad. It does, but it is such a joy. I think you started the interview by talking about celebrating that you'd known this first patient of yours who identified as transgender being, you know, that joy and privilege. And it it is, isn't it? It's just this whole privilege that we have of walking with people who have so much more of a difficult struggle with life. And I I just think, you know, GPs are so lucky. We're so privileged. You know, we get to walk on difficult journeys with people and enhance their strengths and encourage them. And, you know, I learn as much from my patients as they learn from me. So it, it really is a privilege. But they're kind of getting back to your, you know, like feeling like there's no evidence It is certainly a challenge because you kind of feel when you're treating other medical presentations, often there's a guideline and you know if you follow that guideline then you're doing the right thing and you're not going to attract any attention for practising outside your scope and being a bit of a cowboy. And it felt a little bit less safe to be providing gender-affirming care because less people did it. So part of, I guess, my leadership in inverted commas because I struggle with that I had to really think about leadership for this talk part of my leadership is to think if we don't have a sense of scarcity if more people are doing it and we're all looking at you know there are guidelines Auspath has got guidelines WPATH has got guidelines Equinox down in Melbourne launched the informed consent model of care that was you know very well written It's not as outside of the scope as it felt. It was just a new thing to learn. Um, And now there's so much research being done down in Victoria by the Thorn Harbour Health people and they're publishing so many papers and they're doing sociology study and psychology study as well as as physiology study. So that's really exciting because there's more and more evidence coming out that we can read and you know, evidence on transitioning and detransitioning and what's the cause of detransitioning. Well, for a lot of people, it's just because their community couldn't cope and the stress of trying to affirm their gender was too difficult because they weren't supported. So it was easier to detransition, which is, to me, that's that's a tragedy, that society can't support a person's true declaration of their identity. So... Yeah, it's great that there's more evidence coming out, more research being done, the community participating in the research and happy to contribute so that there will be more evidence available. So it's an exciting space to be working in. The next thing I'd actually like to talk to you about is then where to next? What's the next thing that Martina Gleeson has in her ambitious targets for leadership? In this space? Yeah, because I don't regard myself as an ambitious leader. (laughs) I was thinking about leadership as a model and really I don't regard myself as an ambitious leader, but I do recognise that I look at systems and how things can be improved and I'm willing to sort of step into that space Mm. and try and contribute to it. So the very most recent thing that I've been thinking about is how 
it can be challenging to keep life in balance. If you get a reputation for being a good provider of transgender care, you will get a lot of patients and it can be quite a caseload. And if you're working unsupported because you're not part of a team, I think that can make people at risk of burnout. And so I'm trying to think about ways that we experienced doctors and like experienced in general because life experience so stronger boundaries and things like that can help younger doctors coming into the space and maybe develop a model of clinical supervision which is more about the mental health clinical supervision and preventing burnout and providing peer support to other doctors who are working in the space sharing tips allowing a safe space for people to express distress if they've had a challenging consultation with a person. And I think maybe it needs to be multidisciplinary. And it's just at the moment, it's brewing in my head and I'm speaking to people like you, Beck, and to other people to try and come up with a model that we might try in a small scale and then see if it is more generalizable. Because I think working in isolation is a danger, danger to our own mental health. And so it's better to have some peer support. So that's my very latest in this space in terms of leadership. So you're talking about a peer support group that's specifically for doctors interested in transgender, or are you talking about more just a clinical supervision model? Because certainly from where I sit, I think this is just a subgroup of I mean, if, you know, taking my view that GPs look after the whole range of everything that really, are, you know, you don't necessarily know what specialised population of patients you might need to be looking after, but that whole load of mental health that we do manage for a large range of our patients does need, I think, more acknowledgement about clinical supervision. Yeah, I agree, Charlotte. If you're working as a psychologist, you don't work without clinical supervision. It's actually a tax-deductible expense of conducting your business. And I don't think it should be peer support just for doctors. Like, Beck and I both participate in a small group learning group where we actually talk to other doctors actually from all over Australia about the hormone levels and medications to use and things like that which is really helpful and there's a little bit of touching on mental health because we talk about the interaction between the increased incidence of autistic spectrum disorder in some transgender patients so we can access that kind of thing but there isn't that model of clinical supervision for the mental health part of things at the moment and I was actually thinking about approaching a psychiatrist and a psychologist in our area and seeing if they would do some group clinical supervision for some of the doctors who are working in this space. And we would pay them just like if you're a psychologist, you pay your supervisor and it's non-Medicare rebatable, but you claim it on your tax. And if you're doing a group supervision, it might be affordable. It might be that we can get some funding. I don't know. This is really so recent in my thoughts and just trying to look around and see what answers might be available. But it's all about caring for the people who are working in the space so that people don't burn out because we need enough doctors to be providing this kind of care so that the community is looked after. Absolutely. And you want to have more and more people because the more that feel comfortable doing it, then the better 
it is for everybody. The easier it is to walk into your general practice and I know that's the doctor that I see if I want to talk about my hormones. So tell us how this works then in with your Health Pathways role. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm a little bit ashamed because my Health Pathways team doesn't have transgender Health Pathways yet. We've got some transgender listings in some of our mental health pathways, but we don't have the full suite, basically because our advisory committees have had different priorities for us. But we are starting to work on them now, so that's exciting for me. Well, there's one next door to you, can I say? I know. <laughs> so you should just do a little bit of a borrow, because can I say as someone who, who uses Sydney Health Pathways, the gender pathway is fantastic absolutely really really useful and they've just been through a process of review of their transgender pathways and I actually acted believe it or not as an expert for them as a subject matter expert to review their pathways for them so you know I guess that's interesting and, and a nice opportunity uh, to the other team that's got really good health pathways on transgender health is Hunter New England and they were actually the first ones to have transgender health pathways. So that's really great. And it may even be that a lot of our teams take the work that Hunter have done and put it on our websites. But we can't put clinical pathways up until we actually have the referral pathways there. And the big thing is actually identifying the referral pathways in our local district because there really aren't that many services for referral in our area. So that's one of the things that has held us back. And sometimes when we identify that in Health Pathways, we actually have to just identify services that are not in our area because they are less available in our area and we still need to help doctors find help for their patients. So and we're working on it. <laughs> A work in progress, as they say. A work in progress. So many works in progress. We've got 370 pathways live in the last three years. So that's pretty exciting, actually. And it's just getting the word out and reminding people to have a look. Sometimes people look on health pathways and they don't find what they were looking for and they kind of stop using them because they, they think, oh, there's no localised content. And so one of the things I do for health pathways is I write to all the chairs of the general practice divisions in our area once a month and I give them an update of what pathways have gone live in the last month. And I also post it on our local GP division Facebook group, which hasn't got many members, but the ones who participate are always happy to hear about the new pathways. What the GP chairs do with that information, I don't have any control over. But yeah, we try to get the word out and we also try to present what health pathways are relevant to a particular topic in any of the PHN education sessions that are being presented. So we can like just get five minutes and say, you've just had a talk on cardiology and these are the pathways that Southeast and Sydney have on the cardiology topic. And these are the ones that Sydney have and here's the login so that people can know that they can go there to continue to get guidance or check up on things that they've got questions. They might've, oh, I remember something was presented in that lecture that I went, I can't exactly remember what it was. Hopefully it'll be on Health Pathways and they can go and check it. I love Health Pathways. We talk about it quite a bit on here. Shout out to our last podcast that was for Louise and she did an exceptional podcast with us last month on her role with Health Pathways. 
I very much enjoyed listening to it. Ah, she's wonderful. What I'd like to do now is discuss your pearl of the week or your tip of the week. And I'm going to lead us away because I've actually just today led a recess of a patient who had anaphylaxis. And my tip is to go and review your anaphylaxis guidelines because I was very happy to hear that ambulance siren come around our corner and also read beyond just the give adrenaline because we need to know what to do after that and then after that and then after that. So although you think, well, I think that I'm on top of my guidelines, a refresher and a review and an update of your posters is always a good thing. I can feed one onto that one, Beck, because I just went and did my CPR update. And I know you only have to do it as a triennial thing, but every time I do it, I always think it's a great thing to do. And what was really good about the one I did this time was very much about the being the leader of the team. And not just about having the skills, but actually taking responsibility in the general practice and or bigger community of being the team leader and what does that all mean and knowing how everything works. And that actually it is worth it as a practice. Having, you know, regular sessions of actually practicing those sorts of scenarios and having everybody having a role, you know, that go call the ambulance, go get the box. What do we do? Where's the instructions? You know, and so everybody feels comfortable because you don't have to know everything, but you do need to lead it smoothly and make sure that the kit is all there with everything in it. But yes, so my tip of the week is just make sure your practice does that as a regular thing. You know, you can do it at a lunchtime. We always do it as a case scenario. So we make up a story about someone collapsing in the waiting room. And then just make sure everybody thinks about what their roles are and is comfortable with doing it. And use everybody. It doesn't just have to be the doctors. It's the receptionist and the nurse and anybody else who happens to be running around in the rural context and certainly cities as well. Make use of the people in the waiting room sometimes because there there will be people (laughs) standing there unwittingly. Part of our crisis management our protocol here is that it's the job of one of the secretaries to usher people out of the area that the collapsed patient is in because we don't want sticky beaks. So you can just get up and move over there. And, but yeah, using bystanders as helpers is a good idea. Well, you know, that quarter past six in the evening scenario, isn't it? When you don't actually have any other staff around. And so you may need to be able to think about being a little bit more user-friendly of the person who's in the waiting room. Yes, because I agree. It's much better if you can get a shuffle them out. Am I allowed to have two tips? Of course you can. (laughs) We've been talking about transgender health, so I really need to point people in the direction of the Trans Hub website because it's a fantastic resource for all people in the transgender space. It's got legal advice. It's got advice to patients about how to change their gender identity documents. It's got clinical advice and and stuff about hormones and it's got documents that you can use for informed consent. It's got information for allies and families and links to support groups. So I think it's a really wonderful resource for anybody who's working in the space. And I often send patients and their families and young doctors if they haven't heard of it to that website. And the other thing that's been exciting me this week, and I may be behind the times, is that 
I discovered in the health link part of our clinical software that up the top of it, there's a thing that says specialist referrals and you can identify specialists in your local areas and send them an e-referral using HealthLink smart forms. And I know that Sydney Local Health District has been doing that for some of their outpatients' clinics. And I have been using Medical Director, using Medical Director Exchange to send e-referrals, but this is so much easier because I don't need to look up their HealthLink EDI. I can just see e-refer and press on that and, and write the referral. So I've been very excited because that's less paper and secure com, um, communication and I really like improving my digital skills a little bit at a time every week. So that's been my excitement this week. Great tip. I didn't know it. I'm actually looking at it now. I'll have to have a play. Yeah, I, I saw it and went, oh, I wonder what that is. And, yeah. and I did exactly that. I had a play and went, oh, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be um, naughty and take a second one quickly to the gender centre. So if anybody doesn't know about the gender centre, go and also find them. They're, they're a physically located service who actually have, provides an amazing range of different services, including um, emergency accommodation that morphs into longer term accommodation and a whole lot of, of people who can actually really help anybody who's struggling for whatever reason and they've got psychologists, they've got social workers and they're actually able to really assist people navigate that pathway when life is particularly distressing but more to the point if they're homeless but not just for homeless people. They also run some amazing parents groups and I think the parents groups are really, really helpful because for a lot of people it's very difficult um, having that as we've talked about having a child who no longer identifies with their birth gender and meeting with and talking with other parents is extraordinarily normalising and validating about how to actually continue parenting safely. Yep, I'd agree with that. Sounds wonderful. So I wanted to say a big thank you to you, Martina, for coming along today to chat with us and enjoy your weekend, both of you. Thank you. Same to the two of you. Thanks, Martina, and here's to continuing your wonderful leadership across all ranges of medical care. Thank you.